so choose. Oh, hi guys. I'm Josh, again. Um, we are at the final week of uh, this series called Broken Colors, and we've been doing this since Easter. So this has been a good, like, almost four-month run, um, which is, the, here's, here's the way the, the sermon series kind of breaks down. Um, we're using the lectionary, so we're using text from all over Scripture designed to kind of take you through the biblical tradition in three years. Uh, we gave it a crack in four months, and boy, am I exhausted. No, um, and then uh, we were going to juxtapose that or support it with whatever was going on directly inside the news cycle for that week. So we had to be like in the news every single week, and then basically by Wednesday decide, okay, this is the major theme of this week, and that's what we're going to talk about, and we'll use the lectionary text to somehow somehow make sense of this crazy, uh, crazy world we're living in. Um, and when we kind of came up with this idea, I came to the strategy team, which is a group of like three or four of us, um, and myself, and then Chelsea. Uh, and we always go to El Cholo, and we have a strategy team meeting. Um, shout out to El Cholo. Uh, that's on the podcast. This is sponsored by El Cholo. Um, we go there, we hang out, and, and we just vision cast. And we kind of say, like, what do we need to be talking about? And the line that I always throw out to them is, okay, guys. So we're going to go through the sermon series. We're going to figure this out. How can we almost get me fired? That's always kind of the idea. Is like, how can we talk about something uh, that isn't normally talked about in church, that we struggle with a lot of the time? Um, and for this one, we kind of all said, like, I think we're not talking enough about what's happening around us, like what's really, really happening. Like when you walk into most church settings, uh, you're kind of walking through this strange bubble vortex thing that once you get inside, what's happening on the outside usually takes a pause. And that's wonderful and good, and we do that here as well. But part of what Resonate is and wants to be is not just a church that plays the hits, um, because once you're a band that starts just playing the hits, you're on the county fair circuit, and you might as well be, like, I mean, that's it. That's it for you, right? I actually grew up playing in bands, um, and my big claim to fame when I was in high school was that I got to go on this really awesome uh, tour with a band called Journey. And Journey's number one complaint, all the guys in the band would just always, like, they would twinge and they would go and you'd see it because the set list, the next song would be Don't Stop Believing." And as soon as they got there, you could see an audible just sort of like sadness and just, ah, like, <laughs> they have to play this song for the zillionth time. I think often when we walk into a church setting or a church building, we play the hits to be safe, right? Let's do that passage in Rome again. Let's do the prodigal son. Let's do this. Let's do that. But once we do that, we're kind of ignoring the creative space that God wants to allow in a service like this. That God wants us to keep going, to keep looking into the text and pulling fresh things out because God is alive and we believe that this thing called the Bible, this holy word, is also a living word. So if it is a living word, we have to treat it as such and let it continue speaking to it. And so that's the idea behind Broken Colors because this title actually means just that in the art world. Um, Bobby's going to be painting a fantastic, uh, well, you'll see at the end, I can't give that away, um, but it is using Broken Color. Um, Broken Color came out of this. In France in the 1700s, mostly in Paris, there was a group of artists that became fed up with the status quo. Here's what art looked like then. If you wanted to make money as an artist, you could do two things. You could either do a, a portrait of someone, a wealthy person that would pay you to preserve what they looked like, and the idea in that was that you would go and you would, you would do it as photorealistically as possible. So the style of the day was that you did not want to see any evidence that there was ever even a creator or an artist on that canvas. 
the, the brush strokes were designed to smooth together so that it looked like there was never even a brush at all. And so if you didn't want to do portraits, the only other thing that people were paying money for was uh, classic literature come to life. So what they wanted was like, people would want like a Hansel and Gretel painting and they wanted to see it to life because just like the movie industry, they understand that there's big money in painting something or creating a film about something that has already been a book before or already been a story before, right? These were safe bets for artists. And so art was kind of at a standstill. It was stagnant because this was what the people were buying and so the artists were going towards that. But what any good innovator, or especially any good artist understands, is that it's not to listen to the vast majority of people, not to listen to where the money's going, not to listen to the status quo, but to disrupt the system and create something truly new. Henry Ford once said, if I built the people what they wanted, I would have built a faster horse, right? The idea that true innovation takes it a step further and says, look, inside the human capacity is the capacity to create new worlds to create something you never knew you wanted to see or you never knew you needed. 30 years ago, if I told you you would have a little magic device in your pocket that could take you places, unlock things, start cars even, you would look at me like I was crazy, but someone was crazy enough to create that said device and now a whole new world has been created around that, right? If you lose your phone, you are literally standing there going like, I have no way to get anywhere, right? It's a new world, it's created something. But if the creators had just listened and built more rotary phones, because that's what was selling, we never would have gotten to this space. And I think that is the creativity we need in church. So these, these artists that were called Impressionists, which actually, now we look at that term and we go, yes, the Impressionists, like a very lofty, like bougie, awesome name. The Impressionist was actually an insult given to these artists by the artists doing the portraits and doing the classic literature stuff, because they were saying, all you're doing is a cheap impression of what I'm doing. But the idea of these Impressionists was instead of painting portraits or classic literature, literally stuff that is designed to preserve things, let's go out and paint things and make them come to life. So they went outside and they started painting sunsets and flowers and boat parties and moments, things that were fleeting, things that would not last, and they painted them with this uh, technique called broken color. And what Broken Color did was it flew in the face of those artists even further, and instead of smoothing out all of the little lines, it created this brushstroke mechanism that you could see every single individual stroke. We're not hiding. There is evidence that there is a creator here, and I'm the artist, and I want to present you with something that's going to give you life. So if we look at this, this is a, a perfect example of Broken Color. No offense, Bobby, it's coming along great. Um, <laughs> this right here, uh, you can see, um, if we had a higher quality projector perhaps, that all of these are just jagged painting. It's textured. It's got, like if you were to come up to it and feel it, you would feel lumps. The artist is not hiding their presence inside of this. And actually, this kind of art was revolutionary because it trusted the viewer for the very first time. It said instead of making this as realistic as possible and as literal as possible and as just like dumbed down as possible, Let's create something that when someone looks at it, they may see something differently than this person and they may see something differently than this person. Much in the same way that our creator leaves his fingerprints all over this thing called scripture and is not hiding from the fact that in all creation there is a creator. Just look at that in terms of the beautiful picture of a church and people coming together. 
each one of us adds a stroke to the canvas. And we're not supposed to be smoothed out. We're not supposed to blend in altogether. We're supposed to be wildly, uniquely different because our creator is wildly and uniquely different. We're actually called to be just who we are. And the cool thing is when we come to a space like this, a space like the table, and we come and we receive communion, remember what Christ has done for us, we're actually coming to a space where all of those colors blend together and we can see the picture that God is painting. That's the beautiful idea of broken color, and that's the beautiful idea of a church. We don't have to smooth things out. We can be exactly who we are. And then this color supports this color, and then this stroke supports this stroke, and before you know it, we've painted a picture. We've painted something new, and it looks like us. It looks like the church. It looks like an expression. I'm always struck with how much just one person, just one line, to another person, to another individual, one like thing of encouragement, one insult, anything like that can change the trajectory of someone's lives because we really are that connected. Think about like the last 12 compliments you got and then think about the last insult you got. Which one matters more, <laughs> right? I bet you can't even think of the 12 compliments, but the insult's like, yep, someone called me an idiot the other day. Like that, that comes right to mind. If you look at any point in your life, like the trajectory that changes, like these big life moments, like, oh, I finally, I packed everything into my, my car and I moved and my life was forever changed. I, I went down on one knee, my life was forever changed. I, all of this stuff that happens, there's usually a person involved, no matter how like, like vividly they are involved, they are involved. There's this um, improv game. Uh, my brother it does improv uh, for a living. He's a very funny man. Um, but he, they always play this game where uh, three of them will come up, there'll be three people, and it's a sentence game. So they, they create a story and a structure by going like in a sentence and it's in a line, so there's a person here, and they'll start the story by going like, so I packed my bags and I was ready to go, and then the next person will go like, and then along the journey, uh, we met this man, and then the next person will go, and this man told us to take a left, so we took a left, and it'll go so on, and it's much funnier than that, I'm not a funny person. So, <laughs> much funnier than that, but here's the deal, right? They're all supporting each other, just one line at a time. Just one line. One line can change the trajectory of a story. So here's another example of that, and here's where it goes terribly wrong. If you have two people that are absolutely supportive, and one says, so I packed my bag and went off for the journey, and the next one says, and then we met a man along that journey, and then the next one says, and I decided I didn't like it, and I went home. Right? All of a sudden, you've killed the story. You've killed it. And I wonder how often in our lives we're killing off stories left and right. Killing off stories by the way we live our lives, by the way that we put information out into the world. Twitter is a perfect example of this, right? These one lines that can change trajectories, that can move worlds. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the ancient rabbis truly believed that words create new worlds. Because when God creates the universe, what does he do? He speaks it into existence. We have the power to change trajectories. About like 10 or 15 years ago when I was playing in that same uh, journey band, um, I had a separate little MySpace account. Yes, MySpace. Um, and on it, uh, I had uh, just some solo music that I was putting out uh, just for fun. And a friend of mine, sort of a friend of a friend, an acquaintance uh, named Tommy, 
Tommy uh, took a real liking to it. And so he would come to shows, and most of the time, like if I was doing a solo show, it'd be like me and Tommy. And Tommy just, Tommy liked it a lot, but I never really got to know Tommy. I just kind of got to see him from afar, maybe give him a handshake, give him a hug after the show, that kind of stuff. Um, and Tommy, uh, we went our separate ways after I stopped kind of playing music in bands and stuff. I moved to Los Angeles and lost touch with Tommy. We've always been like Facebook friends from afar. And I never really gave this gentleman much thought. He was just always a really supportive person. And then about like three or four years ago, I got an email um, and the subject line was Tommy from all those shows. <laughs> and I clicked into it and I re quickly realized this is going to be an in-depth read. And it was this like three page long email and in it, it outlined Tommy's sort of life existence. And it started from like when he was a kid, he talked about his family and how he didn't come from a home with any kind of faith and actually came from some abuse. And it was really like it was a struggle growing up. And then randomly, he said, I stumbled upon your music. And it wasn't my music. This is not a brag story. <laughs> he actually said, I stumbled upon your music, looked who your influences were, and those were the people that truly influenced me. So thank you. Um, but looked at who your influences were, and I started listening to that music, and then I started reading some of the stuff that you had like, uh, put out in terms of like authors that you recommended. And I started that, that sent me down this path. And then I, I met new people as I engaged with this new material. And then all of a sudden, I found myself giving my life to Christ five years later. And not only that, I took a job as a crew member, which is like for a um, campus ministry uh, in the Cayman Islands, and I'm now a director of this giant thing in the Cayman Islands. And then fast forward two years from then, I wrote him back this awesome email. It was like one of the most touching things I'd ever read. I, I, two years later, we're, we're here and we've started Resonate, and we're only a couple weeks in, and we were smaller than this at that point, and in walks Tommy. And Tommy sits right where Linda's sitting there right now. And I look over, and I see him, and his hands are raised, and he's worshiping. And I quickly realized that like all of the credit that he had been giving me, where it was just that one moment, that one nudge that led him to other moments, that led him to other people, that led him eventually to this whole life change, seeing him in that moment was now affecting me even bigger. What it shaped him was now shaping me. And what that is, is all of those colors coming together and supporting and moving. What initially set him on the path was now setting me on a brand new path. I think what we need to do as Christians, as people of Jesus, is really, really focus in. When you see a moment like that, when we have a moment like that, we need to hold on to it. We need to be, learn to be students of moments. And I'm not talking like an, a literal minute here, and I'm not talking an hour, I'm not talking like a season, any of that, but moments. And you know what I mean when I say that. There's like an instinctual thing like, oh yeah, that was a moment, right? In the early 90s and late 70s, bell bottoms were a moment. We have moments, right? Here's a crazy statistic for you. We've talked about this, especially as we were just ramping up as a church. Um, but the average tenure of a human being in Santa Monica were extraterrestrials, we don't know, but a human being is one and a half years. One and a half years. That's the average time someone will live in this city, which is crazy town. So that just means this is an ever-revolving door of people, of humans, of personalities. And I think especially here, if we are going to have real deal communion with people, community with people, and actually are in this for the long haul, we're going to have to become much better at learning from moments. Because we've only got so many with these people in our lives. And before you know it, they're going to 
off, off, new people, off. It's this revolving experience. We have to learn to hold these moments. And especially here, we actually got to learn how to engage in relationship and vulnerability in a totally different way because your kind of normal five years of hanging out and then we can call each other friends as an adult relationship is not going to cut it in a space like this. We have to do real deal work to open ourselves up to actually push that relationship along. And I think one of the major deterrents of, of relationship and vulnerability and all that stuff and moving from just like we're acquaintances to we're friends to like, no, you know what, actually like if you need help, I'm going to show up for you, uh, is this line. That's not appropriate at the dinner table. And that's also group therapy for me because that's something my mother would tell me all the time. That's not appropriate at the dinner table. That's not dinner conversation, right? Maybe that's not said. And that rule, that rule has an excellent origin story probably and it's probably with your like, unknowably racist uncle at Thanksgiving, that rule abides there, right? But with us and relationship in a city like this, where you have a year and a half on average to get to know people, we have to break that rule. Because my whole thing is like, if that's not appropriate to talk about, if we can't share who we are at a table, where can we share it? The new rule should be, that's not appropriate online, right? That's not appropriate on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. We need to do better at long-term relationship here. Jesus said some of his most provocative, crazy stuff that eventually got him killed at a table. He told stories that were wild, and he told it with people that might have thought exactly the opposite that he did. Why did he get away with that? In almost every instance in Scripture where Jesus is telling a parable, he sat down having a meal at a table with someone who does not look like him. And when you begin to read this and you realize how much Jesus is eating and drinking, one, that's remarkable, and then two, you kind of think to yourself, like, how is it that he's getting away with saying all this stuff at the table? Because in our modern day thing, either you just get up and leave or they'd be kicked out of the party, right? Like, we're not going to stand for that. You can't talk like this in my home or at my table. This is my space and you must, <laughs> my space, and you must adhere to this set of values if you're here. The whole reason that Jesus was actually able to get away with what he got away with at the table, and I think what we need more of in this literal space as a table, is that there were certain rules in place that would have allowed him to continue talking no matter what and would make the host have to listen to what he had to say and treat him with respect and honor. And that's not a gimmick or a tactic on his part, like you're stuck and you have to listen to me, but let's look at more on the host. The idea of a conversation is that he could say these provocative things and he could push them spiritually and he could say, you've thought it was this way, but it's actually this way. And he could offend these people who have given their lives to being Pharisees, to being people in the temple who have studied this scripture stuff and it is their life. And he's bold enough to say like, no, I don't think it looks like that. I think it looks like this. But here is the major thing that we need to give the Pharisees credit. They always listen to him. They may get wildly angry with what he has to say, but there is no instance in scripture of a Pharisee getting so mad that they just up and leave. They always give him the dignity and the respect to hear him out, and especially at a table, and there's a reason for that. And to talk about that, we have to talk about desert hospitality. <laughs> we get nerdy today. Um, desert hospitality uh, and ancient hospitality worked a little bit differently, a lot bit differently, than what hospitality looks like to us Today. And here's how it would work. Uh, in a tribal system and in a nomadic system for most, if you were grazing large herds or it, like those jobs are very common, if you were a shepherd, you were constantly on the move. 
And in a place like Israel, where it is scorching hot and, and supplies are limited, and water is a limited viable resource, you were really at the mercy of those around you, of your neighbors, of the people of the town that you would come in. You were literally life or death desperate for them to give you food, water, and shelter. So what this did, and it's a huge, huge thing in the Old Testament, because what God says to this group of people, this new nation called Israel, is he's like, you're gonna be a nation that defines itself by how you follow me. And what that's gonna look like is this. Here's a number one rule for you. Every time you see a stranger you will treat the stranger with honor, dignity, and respect because you were once slaves, strangers in a foreign land. So you will treat people as you wish to be treated, which comes full circle around when Jesus starts saying things like, love your neighbor as yourself. So the stranger is someone that's other. They're foreign. They're not from your land. Is this beginning to sound like a news cycle to you? <laughs> They're not from your land. You must treat this stranger like you are saving their lives, and you literally would be. So if you were a stranger, if you were a foreigner, if you were a traveler, you would go to either two places uh, to initiate this sort of invitation from the, the host's home. You would go to a well or you would go to a gate. And it, a really cursory reading of the Gospels, a really quick read, will show you that a lot of Jesus' conversations happen at either gates or wells. Why? Because he's talking to people who are literally life or death desperate for an invitation in. So whenever we see him at a gate or a well, always look at that and go, these people were waiting to be let into something. So you would wait at a gate or a well, and then someone, probably like the youngest of the whole tribe or something, would be a lookout, and they would see you at the well, or they would see you at the gate, and then they would ride towards you or walk towards you, and then they would assess you, and they would see what your mission was, who you were, where you were going, what's your story, and then they would do that, but this was all just sort of like very like nonchalant, like it's, it's, you're going through the motions here because it would almost always end in, please come in. Because to turn away the stranger was literally to send them out into the elements, literally to send them out into maybe death. So they would say, would you come in? And then you would come in as a guest, and here's how the ritual would go down. First thing that happens, you are handed a loaf of bread as a gift to say you will be sustained in this house. And then, second thing, while you're munching on your bread, the host would literally start washing your feet. So, think about this, guys. In terms of our, like, if you want to get to know someone, hey, let's go grab happy hour or something like that, imagine if someone in instantly bought you dinner and then starts washing your feet. You're going to get vulnerable pretty, pretty quickly, right? This is an intimate act, and it's to say the dust that you've been traveling in, the toil, in this home you are safe, and we will protect you. And then most importantly, you would sit down for the family meal, which is in, in that day, there was really only one meal a day that had like a small snack, but all day would be spent prepping for this meal. And if you had a guest, that meant the most valuable things you had in the quote unquote fridge, the finest bottle of wine, all of that stuff was opened, the fattened calf was slain, everything was brought to this guest because this guest is everything and you treat them with the utmost honor and respect. And here's the deal, it goes this far. The honor duty codes literally say this. If someone were to break into that home and try and cause violence in that dinner party, which I know we always experience that, if someone tries to come in and hurt your guests, you are honor bound to protect them to your death. To your death. Because when they sit down at your table, they are literally under your protection and part of your family. That's what that meant. The word house in scripture can mean family line, 
just like it can mean a regular house. The word table in scripture can actually mean table or it can mean family and friends. We've talked about this before, but it bears reiterating who you ate with literally signaled who you belonged to. Who you sat down at a table with literally told the whole world you belong to these people. And the host would offer up all sorts of things. So when Jesus is sitting down at this table, he is literally protected the honor and dignity where those Pharisees have reached out to him and said, well, you sit here, you're with my family. And he would eat with them, and then all of the people, all of the sinners, all of the tax collectors that he was eating with before would go, why is he eating with them? Why is he saying he's belonging to the Pharisees? And then he would go right on over to the sinner and the tax collector's house, and he would have a meal there again, and he would just be befuddling everyone. Like, who does this man belong to? And I think the beautiful metaphor there is no one. And in fact, Jesus does all of these crazy things at the table where he breaks the bread, which is something the host would only do. So he's sitting down and he's saying, not only am I going to commandeer your table, but now I'm the host, right? This is the I'm the captain now moment. I'm like, here we go. He would break the bread and he would become the host. And then symbolically and literally, and here's what's so important, symbolically and literally, those people would become his family. His family. Imagine if we had that kind of view of the table. So all of these rules were designed to take you from the stranger coming into your home to take that stranger from a stranger to a friend in the matter of one meal. One meal. Talk about pushing that moment along, holding a moment. So they're going from you were a stranger outside to now you are friend and family at my table all in the course of one single meal. And I think in our relationships, and in our world, we need more of that breakneck relational speed. To say from the very get-go, and actually the Christian tradition outlines this, from the very get-go, you are loved, and I will treat you with honor and dignity. And you don't need to earn that. That is just freely given as you step into this space. It's not just a symbol. That table, the, the, the meaning of that table, of the table that we come to, this is the same exact principle. There's a reason God outlined this. When we come to this table, we are literally reminded of those protection rules, of those honor rules, of those family rules. But the problem is the meaning has gotten really, really lost because we've just viewed this as a fun symbol and it's something great to do. But what does it really mean? Does it really literally mean anything or is it just a symbolic gesture? And it literally does mean something. We have that picture of the arrow, David. We can pull down the lights if you don't mind. Perfect. Okay, so about 10 years ago, um, as people were getting uh, very proficient at Google Earth, um, some really astute Google Earthers began finding these arrows. And let me tell you, these must be people with a lot of time on their hands because each one of these arrows is in the direct center of nowhere. Like there are nowheresville, USA. But they began to see that there are these arrows like just scattered around rural America. And what are these arrows? And what are they? And so naturally, the internet does what it go does best and it goes into investigative crazy mode. Um, and this is where a lot of crazy people end up uh, coming to the conversation. So there is a group in South Arizona that is literally dedicated to the fact that these are the sign of the second coming and the arrow points to where that's coming. Um, there's another Reddit group that uh, believes this is the proof of extraterrestrial life, right? Uh, it didn't, it took a postal worker 
about one year into this, no one could figure out what these were really for. And in a like, nation like America that's not that old, and an internet that's crazy robust, it was so weird that we couldn't figure out their origin. right? But this one postal worker takes a look at the pictures, and he goes, those look familiar. I think I've seen those before. And then does a little in-house research, a little in-house postal research, and finds that in the 1920s and 30s, when the Postal Service was first experimenting with air delivery, they built these arrows with beacons attached, and they would literally show the plane where to go. They had a literal meaning, to which most of the internet responded, that can't be true, right? Like, but it had a literal meaning. That was its purpose. They were built to actually show you the way. When we lose the literal meaning of the table, then there's going to be all sorts of hearsay about who can and who can't come up to the table, about who can participate and who can't participate. When we view this in a literal way, which, good Lord, you know me, like this is about as Bible literacy as we're going to get. If you view this in a literal way, then you cannot refuse anyone. And I'm not just talking about dipping a piece of bread in a cup, because I think it trickles down to way more than this. This affects our theology. This affects the way that we approach church. Who can be invited in? Who can't be invited in? Who's given the seat at the table? Who's not? All of these things matter, and it starts here. It starts with a literal interpretation of the Bible. And God makes this so clear when he literally invents communion. Let's go to that uh, scripture if we can, David. This is, uh, this is the Last Supper. This is out of Mark 14, and I think the words are going to get cut off, so help us all. Um, when evening came, Jesus arrived uh, with the twelve. They were reclining at the table, eating. I'm going to skip that. He's, and he said, truly I tell you, uh, one of you will betray me, the one who dips his bowl and is eating, dips his hand in the bowl and is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips his hand into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when uh, drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And David, can we just go back one slide, please? So there's a couple really interesting things to unpack with this. This is the first instance and actually the first gospel ever written where we see this beautiful tradition of communion. And here's the deal. There's only one declarative statement in that. There's only one order from Jesus, and here it is. Take it. There are no rules lined up about how to go about this. There are no rules lined up about who can and who can't. Literally, the only directive, the only action that is spoken is take it. Take it. Here's how far it goes, too. Right before then, he lays the guilt trip on old Judas and says, hey, I know what you're up to. I know you're going to betray me. I know I'm going to get killed. Judas stays and is still welcomed at that table. He doesn't even kick the guy who's going to be responsible for his death out of the table. This is crazy, crazy stuff. So all of these rules, again, it's not just about the table. It's about all of this, of who's in and who's out. It's not in there. It's not in there. 
Maybe it's in Leviticus, and maybe it's in like the first part of there, but once we get to here, he's turning the whole thing on its head. This is on a Passover meal, so this is the biggest celebration of the entire year. This is like if you were at Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner, and then all of a sudden, like they just flip the whole tradition around, and not only that, but he declares, you should do this every time you gather. You should throw a Christmas feast every time you gather. You should throw an Easter feast every time you gather. You should throw a Thanksgiving every single time you're together. And when you break this bread, you're going to remember me. It's going to remind you of this good work. Take it. When we invite people that don't look like us, that don't believe like us, into spaces like this, we are inviting the stranger in to become a family and friend and Friends, they are always welcome here. They're always welcome here. Here's how I know this works. This is a scripture uh, later on, and it's in the book of Luke, and this is after Jesus has died and he's come again. Um, and it's, it's called the story on the road to Emmaus. And they're going, and it's about seven miles away, and these disciples are walking, and along the way they encounter uh, this, this stranger, this man, and it's Jesus, but they can't recognize him. And they're walking along the road, Uh, And as they get to the village and the sun is going down, they're not about to send this stranger out into the world because that represents darkness and bandits and you're sending them out to death. So they invite him in. They say, please come in. We'll pick it up there. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on uh, as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to go stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, the most remarkable part about this scripture, I think, is the fact that they don't talk about the fact that Jesus just went like, poof, right? Like, that's not the discussion. The discussion is, oh, wait a minute. We just experienced a moment. Did you feel how our hearts were burning when we walked along with him to the road? It also says they approached the village near where they were going. So in no part of this story are we concerned with if they actually got to Emmaus or yet. It's not about that destination. It was about the journey. And when they encountered a stranger and invited that stranger in and shared a meal with that stranger at a table, they saw Christ. It's probably the most profound little nugget of wisdom I can give you. As they invited the stranger in and fed him, they saw Christ. And he took the bread and he becomes the host and he breaks it and all of a sudden they realize, truly, this is a risen God. It's at this table where all of that salvation and gift is offering. And it's at that table where we see Christ. And it's in spaces like this we encounter that table, but that table trickles out. This whole thing is a table. The whole thing is a table. As we're in spaces like this, we're treating it like that. And here at Resonate, we're going to take it literally. (laughs) Might be the only thing we take literally. We're going to take that literally. That this is a space that everyone is truly welcome in no matter what. Nothing's off the table, so to speak. And that's actually going to be the title of our next series. Um, We're going to do a series called, it's going to be four weeks long. We're just going to kind of get us through uh, the summer here, and then we'll reassess for the fall. But uh, we're going to do a series called Nothing is Off the Table. And basically what this comes down to is Jesus' conversations at table. Uh, Rabbis in his day, and Jesus would have had this too, had two things. It's called Halakha and Haggadah. 
And halakha was your legal knowledge. It was the stuff you could spew out. It was the people that could spew out scripture, like na 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 And then there was the Haggadah, which was the stories that described scripture. And if we notice, every single time Jesus is sitting at a table, he uses the Haggadah and not the halakha. So appropriate dinner conversation for Jesus is telling stories about people that change people. It's an argument for the sake of the world. It's a Haggadah. So what I want us to do, each one of you has a piece of paper. Um, we are going to talk about things in church uh, that we would not talk about at the dinner table. That's not appropriate at the dinner table, quote unquote. So what I want you to do is I want you to ask some questions. You can ask as many as you want. You can fit as many as you want on that paper. Um, but I want you to ask the types of questions that you didn't think you could ask. I want you to ask the questions that you think are not appropriate for church, or maybe I wasn't allowed to talk about that, or maybe this has just never been answered. Any of these questions, we're going to write them down, and then those questions are going to guide me, and I'll craft the next four weeks out of those questions and out of the stories that Jesus tells at the table. Because we want to be a church that actually takes this stuff, literally. So um, Amina's going to play. We'll do um, one song, and then here's the deal. You are literally going to come up to this, and you are going to drop your questions onto this, which will be a table, wherever Bobby escaped. There she is. Beautiful. Uh, we're going to flip this, and this is going to be a table, and you are going to plop your questions down upon the table, which is a broken color church, where all of us are coming together in beautiful ways to create what God is painting. Um, so why don't you just take a few minutes. Uh, you can write. They're going to play. Um, and then Omid will ask you to stand, and we'll take communion together, and you can drop your questions off.